Now, a very good evening to you all. We're pleased to see you. Thank you for coming. And uh, my thanks to the Assembly, too, for uh, arranging these meetings. I've enjoyed them myself. I hope you have. And uh, it's been good to renew fellowship with you. Of course, uh, I will be here, I think, on the Lord's Day as well, God willing. I don't fly back to the UK until Monday. So, uh, though these meetings come to an end tonight, um, God willing, I shall see you on Lord's Day. Now, I want to read with you tonight, please, in Ephesians chapter 5, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians and chapter 5. And we're going to be thinking tonight particularly of the great institution of marriage, an institution which is um, very, very much under attack today in society. And yet, I trust we will see from the Word of God, it's something very precious to the heart of God. I'm going to use the term, it's an institution. It's a difficult word almost to find a synonym for. Somebody said marriage is an institution, and who wants to live in an institution for the rest of their life? But um, anyway, it is something instituted by God, and we're going to find that out as we read together, first of all, in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, Paul makes a general statement in verse 21 of the chapter, saying, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. He then addresses wives particularly from verses 22 and 23. So he says in verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Then he turns to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence or give honor to her husband. May the Lord bless his word. Well, there's not a lot of wriggle room in those verses. They're very lovely verses. And when you think of the condition of society today, I think anyone 
who was genuinely honest, regardless of religious belief, regardless of whether they have faith or not, I think sensible people would agree that society has been built up and stabilized upon the divine order of a husband and wife and a family raised in that atmosphere and that where there is mutual respect and consideration, there is a happy home. Now, of course, we live in a society where, well, at least we do in the UK, where uh, it is not permitted in institutions like schools and things like that to state that the marriage of a man and a woman for life is divine order. Uh, there is more tolerance given to the idea of two dads or two mums or any other such combination. But there is a great uh, antagonism to the preaching of divine order. The reason for that, I judge, is that very simply, men and women, regardless of faith, men and women know intuitively what divine order is. And if they choose to go another way, they don't want to be reminded of divine order because it pricks their conscience. Now, what we're taught here in these verses that we've read, and we're going to go back to the beginning of things again uh, in Genesis very shortly, but Paul says very wonderfully when he has talked through the relationship and the behavior of the wife to the husband and the husband to the wife he says now this is a great mystery but I speak of Christ and the church so here's a great thing we considered briefly earlier in the week the creation of Adam and how his wife uh, was made as well and how God spoke to them and it's recorded in Genesis chapter 2, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. But the great thing is that Adam and Eve were not the prototype. They weren't the prototype. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, the prototype is Christ and the church. For that was in the mind of God before creation. It was in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. And so the way that God made Adam and Eve and brought them together as husband and wife was in creation an illustration of something far bigger. The very way that he made them was an illustration of what God's ultimate purpose and goal is and that is that he might obtain for his beloved son a bride for eternity. So the prototype is Christ in the church. And Adam and Eve were modeled on that. That would help us understand, wouldn't it, how uh, God decided in his purpose, having made man from the dust of the earth, and having verified that there was no other living thing in creation that could answer to him, in a fitting way, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. It was symbolic of the still future death of Christ. He caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he opened his side, and he took a rib. When you think that God, earlier on in those verses, 
is the God who can just make the stars also. Just call them into being. Billions, trillions of stars. And he just calls them all into being and it seems as though he has haphazardly scattered them into space but of course he hasn't because they all have their fixed orbits and all that kind of thing. And a God who can do that with the word of his power decided to make the first woman by means of a surgical operation. And when the Bible says that he opened Adam's side and took a rib, it's what it means. And the rib he made woman. Now, why did we reverently ask, why did God do it that way? Well, one of the reasons was so that it could be said that Eve was bone of Adam's bone, blood of his blood. She was, she was quite literally one with him. She, she didn't just owe her life to him in the sense that, well, somehow she came out of him, but, but she actually shared in him one of his ribs became his wife. So God made the rib woman. There's a, a good friend of mine. He's a, he's a surgeon out in uh, Tane, just north of Bombay in India. Uh, a very accomplished surgeon. And on occasions when I'm staying with him, he might say, oh, I've got quite an interesting job this morning. Do you want to come and see so it's quite interesting to watch him operate and uh, very fascinating. And uh, it was he who told me, and I verified it with another man when I came home, it was he who explained to me the wonder of the rib. Well, other bones as well, but particularly the rib. And he was speaking about a young lady who had had a, a road accident. She had had trauma to the head. So what they were doing was uh, a colleague had joined him from a hospital in Bombay and, and what they were going to do was they were going to repair her skull by using one of her ribs. They were going to graft bone into her head. So he says, what we do is we, um, we open the side, we expose the ribs, and he said each rib is in a sleeve. It's called the periosteum. And he said we, we carefully uh, open up that sleeve and from within it, a bit like perhaps taking a comb out of a, a sheath or something. He says, we take the bone out of that uh, sheath and we sew up the periosteum and we close up her sight. Now he said, she's an otherwise fit young woman. So he said, I would estimate that in six to nine months, that's all it will take for that rib to grow again. She's not going to be deficient of a rib for the rest of her life. It's one of the features, particularly, of the rib bone. Providing the periosteum is closed up and it's all intact, the rib will grow again. There used to be an old wife's tale that men were short of one rib. Well, we're not. Uh, I don't know if that's where the spare rib idea came from or not. I don't know. But, uh, no, men are not short of a rib. What a curious way. We speak reverently. But what a curious way for God to make the woman. Deep sleep upon Adam, open up his side, 
remove the rib, make the rib woman, and then, closing up the side, Adam's rib would grow again. Do you know why he did it? Because when that operation was complete, there would be no deficiency in Adam, and yet he's got someone who is part of him, who is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. She is an, a, an organic partner of his. And so he's got something wonderful. He's got this woman as his companion and his consort and, and uh, his wife. And, and this woman is part of him, and yet he doesn't lack anything. If you've still got your Bible open at Ephesians chap, uh, chapter 5, just go back to chapter 1. See how that chapter finishes. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> it says of him in verse 21 that God's purpose is that he will be far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. What an expression. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. So the one who fills all in all has got no deficiency. He's Christ, the Son of God. There's nothing deficient about him. There's nothing lacking in him whatsoever. He is the fullness, uh, or rather he fills all in all. And yet, in the purpose of God, he's not complete without his bride. The church is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So that the glorious man who is the Son of God is in the purpose of God and for all eternity incomplete without his bride. Eve is the bride from the wounded side. She is the one who doesn't, as I mentioned, just owe her life to her husband, but she is integrally a part of him. Now, says Paul to the Ephesians, it is a great mystery, but I speak of Christ and the church. And it draws our minds back to the fact that by the grace of God, believers in the Lord Jesus, Christians, as the Bible describes us, we haven't joined a religion. We're not members of a gospel hall or, or members of any other hall or any other church or anything like that. We are what we are because of our relationship by faith with a living man. And the wonderful thing is that when the Son of God was made flesh, when the Lord Jesus came into the world, it was so that he could go to the cross of Calvary, there give his life a sacrifice, firstly so that our sins could be forgiven righteously, but through the opening of his side. I'm thinking now of John chapter 19. His legs were not broken, but a, a soldier with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith there came blood and water. 
blood to satisfy the justice of God, water for cleansing, and symbolically in the sacrifice of Christ, every provision was made, not only for sinners to have their sins forgiven, but for those people who are forgiven to become absolutely, organically associated with Christ. Isn't it wonderful? We have a Savior of whom we are a part. It isn't some bolt-on addition to our lives. This isn't religion. This isn't just going to church. This isn't even just having a faith. This is having a real, personal Savior who willingly gave his life for individuals like you and me. And in the giving of his life and the shedding of, the, of his blood, as his side was opened, he was, he was the reality of which Adam was only a picture. So way back at the beginning of creation, God was giving a wonderful picture of the sacrifice of his own beloved son in years to come. And just as Eve was organically a part of Adam, so that the husband and wife are described as one flesh. In the world of men, one plus one equals two. But in marriage, one plus one equals one. The man is not complete without the female. That's stated in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. And so there, in this wonderful institution of marriage, God was not only setting the, the very building blocks of social order so that there might be procreation and so that there might be families, but he was making a wonderful statement and illustrating it of the death of Christ. And so tonight, those men and women who have acknowledged before God their personal guilt, who have acknowledged before a righteous God that they are sinners, and recognize that the only hope of salvation that any sinner ever has is not in their own works, it's not in any membership of anything. We can't buy it, we can't claim it, we can't do anything for it. There's only one way to know peace with God and sins forgiven, and that is in a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Adam's a picture of him. Has it ever touched your heart to think a man died for you? And not just any man died for you. The Son of God gave himself for you. The Apostle Paul said that when he wrote to the Galatians. And you know, when Paul was getting a wee bit excited about things and, and trying to describe things which were almost indescribable, he wasn't beyond making up a word now and again. He, 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 would, he would take a Greek word and he would, he would bolt a bit onto it like mega. Uh, that used to be a fashionable thing with the youngsters, didn't it? You know, everything was mega. Well, that kind of died out. But, but Paul was probably the first to do it. He would just take a word and he, he would put, put a prefix on it, just make it even bigger than it was before. But the man who could make up words to try and describe the magnitude of things which were absolutely wonderful when it came to the greatness of the salvation which he knew through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he said it in the simplest terms. He said, the Son of God loved me. And he gave himself for me. 
Dear brothers and sisters, don't let us ever get too far away from that. Not only is it the key to this wonderful book, because Christ is in it all, it's also the key to our own peace, contentment, and, uh, and um, happy service as believers in the Lord Jesus. The moment we leave the Lord Jesus out of our doctrine or out of our lives, we'll just become cold, we'll just become legal. We must keep close to him. And we must keep close to the cross and think of the wonder of this sacrifice that was made so that sinners could be saved. And that was pictured in the, in the, uh, in the putting to sleep of Adam, the opening of his side, the taking of a bride out of him, leaving him with no deficiency, but now he's got a glorious bride that's part of him. Now that's God's purpose for the church. And the church, to use the word properly as the Bible does, the church is made up of every person whose faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. So every sinner saved by God's grace is a member of the church part of the spiritual body of Christ. He is the head. We, we seek to obey his control and the whole purpose of it in the mind of God is that one day the Lord Jesus will present the church to himself as a wonderful bride. Before I just go through one or two things further in Ephesians chapter 5, I want just to take you back, if I may, to the book of Genesis because it does explain things which we can observe around us very, very simply. I want you to go back to chapter 3 of Genesis, first of all, please. And we read at verse 16 last night, so we'll do the same again tonight. Verse 16 of chapter 3, Unto the woman God said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Then we have this expression. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. What does that mean? You might recall there's a very similar expression in chapter 4. We, we talked about it last night. Uh, verse number 7 of chapter 4. And God is now speaking to Cain, the first man born into the world, and Cain has been disobedient. And God says to him in verse 7, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if, or rather since, since thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. In connection with chapter 4, when God said to Cain, concerning his brother Abel, he says, unto thee shall be his desire. Now I know that verse 7 isn't the easiest of verses, uh, perhaps to expound, and there might be differences of opinion on it. But I think very simply what God is saying to Cain is this. Cain, you know that if you do well, you'll be accepted. Because you have been before. 
you've come and offered on previous occasions and you've come in the way that I appointed and I accepted your offering, Cain. So you know if you do well, you'll be accepted. But now, as is the case, you're not doing well. Because you've decided now, instead of bringing one of the flock, uh, a sacrifice with blood, because you haven't brought that for me, because you've chosen to bring the works of your hands, the fruit and the vegetables and everything else, and because I haven't accepted it, you're angry. When I look, Cain, you know that if you come the right way, you'll be accepted. But at the moment you are doing the wrong thing, now look, Cain, a sin offering lies at the door. The word sin, in the Hebrew language, and the word for sin offering are one and the same. A sin offering lies at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire. So when we put these things together, the picture seems to be this. That Abel, concerned for the well-being of his brother, horrified that his brother is rebelling against God, Abel, who is a shepherd, who has a flock, has brought a lamb to Cain's door. Cain, there it is. In fact, it would seem that Abel wanted to present it for Cain. Unto thee shall be his desire. He, he would like to stand in your place, Cain. He would like to offer on your behalf. But I've told him no. You've got to offer Cain. You've got to bow your knee. So your brother's desire is unto you. He would like to stand in your place and offer that offering for you. But that's not possible. But I can tell you now, Cain, the way this is going to turn out, because of your rebellion, here's your brother. He's concerned for you. He would like to offer an offering for you. He's even brought a lamb to your door. But you're going to rule over him. And sure enough, the man stood up and he killed his brother. Now we take, if that be the right teaching of verse number 7, we take that back to chapter 3. And God says to the woman, Thy desire shall be unto thy husband. Now it's not a physical desire. It seems that God is saying to the woman, He's saying very well, you decided it would be a good thing for you to act in your husband's place. You should have referred, when, when the serpent came and spoke, you should have referred that to your husband. He was with you, but you didn't do it. Your desire was unto his place. You wanted to stand where he stands. Very well, says God, you'll have what you want. And all the rest of your daughters with you, you'll have what you want. From henceforth, your desire will be unto your husband's place. And as a consequence, he'll rule over you. He'll dominate you. It's very interesting. Folks who've been here every night will get a bit bored of me saying this. But the first 11 chapters of Genesis cover 2,000 years. Big period of time in a small number of chapters. They teach us so much. Not only by what is in there, but by what isn't in there. So that when we come to the beginning of chapter 4, we read, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, she conceived and bare Cain. You don't read of Eve again. 
The name's not mentioned again. Who was Mrs. Kane? You don't know. Neither do I. The Bible doesn't say. Who was Mrs. Noah? Don't know. No name. No details. The, the rest of the chapters, well, there's, there's two wives mentioned. They're there in chapter 4, and one is called Ada, and the other is called Zillah. And they were the wives of a man called Lamech, and they're named because he was the first to go in for polygamy. He was the first to break down that divine institution of marriage where one man has one wife. So he breaks down that divine order, and so the Spirit of God names the two women involved, Ada and Zillah. And for the rest of all that period of time, you don't read the name of another wife until you read of Abraham's wife, Sarah. There's a catastrophic effect upon the family unit. And the woman has come under subjection. And in so many societies in the world today, it's exactly the same. The woman's desire at the beginning of chapter 3 was to stand in her husband's place. And God said, very well, that's what you'll have and you'll regret it for the rest of your days. Now please, I know this can be the stuff of jokes over the supper table and this kind of thing, but this is deadly serious now. There lies within, more or less, greater or lesser degrees, there lies within the natural heart of a woman a resentment about submitting to the male. And where there is not submission, then the male is very inclined to use what is generally, not always, but generally, his greater strength to subdue her. When you think of what that first marriage was like, it must have been tremendous. And, and the dear ladies here, again, we're not being funny in the slightest bit, we're being very serious, but the dear ladies here could only imagine what it would be to have a husband who dearly loved the woman for herself and who anticipated every need, spiritual, physical, uh, in every way, he anticipated her needs. He effectively lived for her. And we men possibly think we could only dream of a lady who simply lived to please him. Not, not just to gratify his fleshly desires, but, but to be a genuine soulmate and a partner so that together they knew exactly what the other was thinking and doing and there was this wonderful harmony where two people, one male, one female, work together exactly as one. And one thing we need to be reminding our younger Christians is that because they are Christians doesn't mean that their marriages will not have the sparks and the ups and downs. It's, it's hardwired into us now through the fall of man. And, and the, the misunderstanding of the whole principle of headship means that marriage in many societies has just become one of subjugation and lordship. The man is boss, the woman is repressed. And I tell you this, there is nothing but nothing in the world that does more for the deliverance and the emancipation of women than the gospel. 
Truly. And that's why Paul, speaking to Christians, people who now that they have had their sins forgiven and they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they have the ability now to live a life above the level of ordinary men and women. And he says to them in Ephesians chapter 5, now submit yourselves one unto the other. So how do you do that? The, the, the thought is of the not just the wife submitting to the husband, but the husband submitting to the wife. How can you both be on the bottom layer? One submitting to the other. He says, no, it's not a question of rank and order. It's a question of, of recognizing and understanding and believing what God intended marriage to be. And so he turns to the wives first. He does so, I judge, because in the order of things in the Garden of Eden, it began with Eve. And so he turns to the wives and he says, Now look, wives, submit yourself unto your husband. And do it as unto the Lord. Now, he doesn't mean that you treat your husband as a Lord. Um, my dear Indian friends won't mind me saying that one of the most oft-quoted verses in an Indian wedding is the fact that uh, Sarah called Abraham Lord. Uh, and it's really a means of just reminding the woman she, that's her place. But what they sometimes forget to remind them is that the Bible says she called him Lord in her heart. It was an attitude of submission. But she's not submitting as an inferior to a superior. She's obeying godly order, recognizing that in that marriage, the man, the male, he has to answer to God for the way that marriage works out, for the way the home is run. And acknowledging that he's the one who's answerable, she submits to him. That doesn't mean, men, that we have our way in all things. You know that. It's very true, I might be the head of my house, but the wife is the neck. So, when it comes to domestic things, if she wants blue cups, she can have blue cups. I mean, most of us don't really bother what color we, cups we drink out of. So, on domestic things, we, we, well, you work things out in your own marriage, in that respect. But when it comes to this fundamental responsibility of answerability to God, accountability to God, that if it comes to the point where the husband is of one mind and the wife is of another, it's not for him to impress his will upon her. It's up to her to submit to him. You see the difference? She's not to be subjugated. She's to willingly submit because that's the divine order. And he, in turn, is not to mistake any submission for weakness. In fact, he's to be touched by that. He's to be moved by that. Peter, when he speaks about these things, he says that the, the husband must give consideration to his wife as unto the weaker vessel. Now, please, he is not teaching that the woman's weaker than the man. He's not teaching that the woman is the weaker vessel. He's saying, men, 
Treat your wives as though they were a precious vessel. If, if there is some very particular precious piece of porcelain or china, some fragile and beautiful vessel, he says, now, treat your wife in the same way as you would treat that. And do it, he says, so that your prayers aren't hindered. It's an interesting point, isn't it? We spoke about buildings in these chapters. Interesting to go through them and see what men built. Abraham was the first man after Noah to build altars. Noah built an altar in Genesis chapter 9. But, but Abraham was a man who consistently built altars before God. And my dear brethren, that's your responsibility in the home. And mine. The, the family altar, they used to call it. The man bears responsibility before God for the spiritual leadership of his home. And in that respect, the wife must submit to him. And it's all too easy in busy lives, I know. It's all too easy for the man to neglect that. Sometimes it's very difficult to get the family together at any one time. So it isn't necessarily all about sitting down at a set time and reading through a set passage. But constantly, the man's main responsibility before God is for the spiritual welfare of his family. Looking out for them. Praying for them. Guiding them. Guiding them by example. Guiding them by instruction. As I mentioned earlier, people of all faiths and no faith, if they were honest, would recognize that any society that is based upon that kind of family unit where the man accepts his responsibility for leadership, moral and spiritual in the home, and where the woman submits to the guidance and the direction of the man, and there's a mutual love and respect, that that is by far the best environment to raise another generation. And now marriage is all but discarded in our own society. Last year was the first year in very, very many where divorce dropped. And the reason the divorce figures dropped was because they're not getting married in the first place. So less than 50% of the people who live together, men and women in our country today, less than 50% are married. The devil hates every form of divine order and he's got to the point now where he has attacked and overturned divine order right down to the very building blocks of society. So that now it's not only societally acceptable for men and men to live together and women and women to live together, but now the geneticists are even working to see that these, that these couples, so-called, can produce their own children. Three generations of mice, according to a recent newspaper report, three generations of mice now have been produced with no female involvement at all. Now they want to try it with humans. God forgive us. The Lord Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And the Bible makes it very clear that as this 
this uh, societal order around us collapses. Democracy discredited, the family unit disintegrated, uh, little children being brought up and they don't know who their mum and their dad really are, and the whole fabric of society is unravelling. The Bible makes it very clear that it will continue to do so until the man they rejected at Calvary who was buried and rose and ascended back to God when he comes to establish his kingdom upon earth. It's interesting therefore when we go through Genesis to see how that uh, the women aren't named it seems as though it's just purely a male society but then very interestingly when we start in Genesis chapter 12 and we go through to the end of the book the, the rest of Genesis really concentrates on four men Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph and I think it's lovely that the book which in its early chapters describes how perfection became so um, spoiled and debased as we find it in chapters 4 and 5. When we come to the end of Genesis and we find, for example, the account of Joseph, God now takes that man and he says, look, I've given you an illustration in Adam. He's given us illustrations of faith in Abraham uh, and uh, further illustrations in Isaac and Jacob. But, but when it comes to Joseph, God says, look, I gave you an illustration of how it all went wrong in the beginning. I'm going to give you an illustration about how it will all come right in the end. And so Joseph is the man who, if you don't know his story, maybe you do know something of his story because the musical is fairly accurate. And uh, when you think of Joseph, one of the ways of looking at Joseph is he's, he's the man associated with four particular houses. When you first read of Joseph, he's in the house of his father. And not long after that, in the narrative about Joseph, he's away from the house of his father, and he's then in the house of a man called Potiphar, because he was sold into slavery. In the house of his father, he was a son. In the house of Potiphar, he was a servant. It wasn't long after that you find him in the prison house. And in the prison house he's a sufferer. But then very wonderfully as you finish the narrative he doesn't remain there in the prison house as a sufferer but he finishes up in Pharaoh's house as a sovereign. So those four houses take us through the life of Joseph and when I think of them I think of a son in the house of his father and I think of the Lord Jesus in John's Gospel. And when I think of a servant down there in Potiphar's house, I think of the Lord Jesus, the perfect servant in Mark's Gospel. And when I think of the sufferer in the prison house, I think of the suffering man in Luke's Gospel. Ah, but when I think of the sovereign in Pharaoh's house, I think of Matthew's Gospel. And in the life of that man, God illustrates how all that went wrong at the beginning of the book of Genesis is going to be brought right under the man of whom Joseph is but a picture again. Adam was a picture. Noah is a picture of Christ. And uh, in some ways, Isaac is a picture of Christ, the man upon the altar. 
the fullest picture is in Joseph. And yet, interestingly, we find he had a bride. She was called Azanath. She was the daughter of a man called Potiphera, the priest of On. It was, she was a Gentile bride. And we know that the church today is largely, not exclusively, but largely being brought out from among the Gentile nations. Not only do we know about his bride, but we know about his building. He, he built granaries to preserve the people when there was famine in the land. And interestingly, we know about his body. Strangely, the book of Genesis finishes up with that man who's such a lovely picture of Christ and the book of Genesis in chapter 50 finishes with his body being in a coffin in Egypt. You see, it's a declaration of all that's gone on in this great book. Sin has come into the world. Death has come with sin. And though there are pictures of a future restoration, all those pictures, because they involve earthly men, they're all bound eventually to fail. Well, we fast forward, and we come to that lovely section that we read in Ephesians chapter 5, and um, I just want to point out the, that there's a past, a present, and a future in those verses. And if you turn back to that chapter just for a few minutes, we'll look at those things. Because Paul is making it very clear that the church, and remember the church, is not a, it's made up of people. The majority of people in this room tonight are members of that church, which is his body. And they're members of that church because of their acceptance by faith of the Lord Jesus Christ as a personal saviour. And that church is seen as being a bride for Christ. Now when Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11... He says, I have espoused you unto one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He's talking about the day of espousal. I have espoused you unto one husband. In our society, certainly in, in, in the UK, and I think uh, amongst a, a lot of folk over here too, the format of a wedding begins with an engagement, an espousal. A promise of one to the other. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, that's where the church is today. We're espoused. We're engaged. We're going to be married. And then here in this chapter, he speaks of us as the bride. And in Revelation chapter 19, he's going to speak about the marriage, and he's also going to speak about the marriage supper, which is what we would generally term the reception or the marriage dinner, or something like that. Let's just point out these things for you to see. Chapter 5 of Ephesians. Notice the tense here. Husbands, love your wives. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for it. That's what he's done for the church in the past. He's given himself for it. By the way, dear men, that is a tremendously high standard, isn't it? Even as Christ loved the church, selflessly, completely, totally, that's how we're to love our wives. 
That's the past. He gave himself for it. Then the present. Verse 29. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it even as the Lord the church. That's what he's doing currently. The one who gave himself for it in the past is currently nourishing it and cherishing it. As far as the future is concerned, verse 27 says that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The picture of verse 25 what Christ has done for the church in the past is Adam and Eve. It's the open side. It's the sacrifice at Calvary in view. And the main thought of it is life. That's where the church gets its life from. It gets it from Christ. It shares it with him. Then when you think of the present as he nourishes and cherishes the church, then the, the Genesis illustration is with Isaac and Rebekah. In that longest chapter in the book, chapter 24, a servant is sent to get a bride for Isaac. And the chapter finishes with him being comforted after the death of his mother Sarah, and it says he took Rebekah into his tent and he loved her. So if in the illustration in the past with Adam and Eve, the thought is of life, with Isaac and Rebekah, a picture of what Christ does for the church today, the thought is of love. But then when it comes to the future, verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, that's really that illustration of Joseph and Azanah. It's about the fact that when Joseph, with all his suffering behind him, the one who came forth from the father's house and had been in the prison house and in Potiphar's house has now been exalted and he's a sovereign and he's given a bride to share his glory. Oh, my beloved brethren and sisters, we've just a few minutes. Let me just try and enthuse your hearts about the fact that very soon we're going to be in heaven. And it's God's purpose that the church of which we are a part is going to be presented. He's going to present it to himself. He's already presented us individually before the face of the Father. And now he's going to present the church to himself, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The very moment the Lord comes to the air to take us home, we're going to be changed. And the church corporately will be the bride of Christ. And there in the... In the privacy of the Father's house, the marriage will take place. When you come to Revelation chapter 19, tremendous chapter, and Revelation chapter 19 is all about that future day when terrible, terrible judgments and destruction will have gone on the, on the face of the earth. And just at the point where it seems life can no longer be sustained, just at the point where it seems the nation of Israel Jehovah's wife is about to be eradicated. She will repent. She will lift her voice to heaven and cry unto her God. And at that very moment, the heavens will open. And when the heavens open, 
The Lord will come forth to deliver his people. He will come forth to establish his kingdom. But there is a great song goes up in heaven. Because that song says, the marriage of the Lamb is come. That is, it has taken place. It's complete. And now preparations are being made ready for the marriage supper. And the marriage supper of the Lamb will constitute, I suppose, at least a great part, if not all, of the millennium. That thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus, Old Testament believers raised from the dead to be the friends of the bridegroom. They're the invited guests. There's a wonderful marriage supper to take place. John depicts it very clearly, very beautifully, in his own Gospel, chapter 2. The first miracle that the Lord Jesus recorded in John's Gospel was at a wedding feast. It was at Cana of Galilee. And John tells us in that chapter, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested forth his glory. The glory of a man whose right it is to rule and to reign. He's a real man, you know. He took humanity back into heaven with him. He's a man forever. And just as Joseph was given a bride to be his consort and his companion and to share his glory, so it will be with the Lord Jesus Christ, now rejected, now set at naught by sinners, but in that day gloriously revealed, and every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he'll rule and he'll reign, and he'll have a bride for himself. At that wedding feast, John portrays it in, in chapter 2 of his gospel. As far as the nation of Israel is concerned, they're the guests, they're there. The man they crucified, they now recognize as their Messiah. And they're going to witness the companionship he has with you and with me. Of course, at that wedding feast, there was a big problem. There was a want. They had no wine. And the reason they had no wine was because there were water pots there and they were bone dry. Those water pots were for purification. Now, the picture is this. That in the experience of the nation of Israel, once they repent... Once they turn back to their God with all their heart, he's going to restore them. But the first thing that must happen is purification. Until as a nation they have been purified, they cannot have the joy of which the wine is a picture. So the Lord said to the servants, his mother said to him, they have no wine. And uh, then she turned to the servants and she said, now whatsoever he says unto you, do it. So the Lord said, right, go away to the well, draw water, Fill the water pots. And they went to the well, and they brought back water into the pot, back to the well, back to the pots, back to the well, back to the pots. And they filled those water pots to the brim. And when there was provision made, the fullness of provision for purification, the Lord said, now draw again. And they went back to the well. And when they drew the next time, it wasn't water, it was wine. 
you're thinking to yourself, hang on, brother, the, water came out, the, the wine came out of those water pots. No, it didn't. Your Bible doesn't tell you that. You just need, need to read it a bit more carefully. It didn't come out of the water pots. It came out of the well. And that's why the Spirit of God uses a particular word that only means to draw water out of the depths. The woman used it in John chapter 4. Sir, the well is deep, and thou hast nothing to draw with. There's the word. So the fullness of... He's checking it. That's good. That's good. When there's the fullness of purification, when that nation is restored, then the joy will be limitless. The Jew would... Ne- it doesn't matter how good that wine was, they would never have drunk it out of those pots. They were unclean vessels. They'd never have drunk it out of those. It's the best wine they ever tasted. And now there's this limitless supply. It's coming out of the well. And at that marriage supper of the Lamb, there's going to be such a joy because the curse has been removed from creation and Israel, the nation, has been restored and Christ, the rejected one, has a bride at his side. What a glorious day. And my brother, my sister, you're going to be there. You're going to be there. Yeah, I find it difficult to imagine as well. Praise God, we're going to be there. There may even be time when we are there for you to come up and just give me a nudge and say, do you remember there was a night in Midland Park and you tried to make us enthusiastic about what was to come? You say, you didn't come anywhere near it. And nor can I. But are you, are you in the enjoyment of it, my brother, my sister? We become earthbound, don't we? We become earthbound and and our horizon is very low. But lift your eyes. Look beyond. It will not be long until the Savior comes. He's changed. And he and I in that bright glory one deep joy shall share. Mine to be forever with him. His. And I am there. What a wonderful thing it will be. And the curse will be removed from the earth. And the nation of Israel will be restored. And the church will be at the right hand of Christ will be reigning, ruling over the angelic administration. Israel will be ruling over the nations of the earth. And the knowledge and the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So as I close, let me just read to you the verse that we read on the first night of our study together. And it was there in Ephesians and in chapter 3. And the last verse of the chapter, Paul says in his prayer, Unto him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And we tonight can say amen, lost in wonder, love, and praise. May God bless his word. Shall we pray?